Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of folded steel. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today our topic is Japanese swords. Everybody likes Japanese swords. They're awesome. They're probably some of the most famous types of swords in the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. For good reason. I mean, they're, they're really cool. I saw that a lot of historians consider them the best military blades anywhere in history. Yeah, very known to be very finely made. Yes, definitely. We all had that friend in high school who had a Japanese sword. <laughs> or at least a knockoff of a Japanese sword. Yeah, yeah, I had that friend. <laughs> Me too. So a lot of different types of swords have been made in Japan throughout their history, but today we're going to focus on something called the Daisho. And the Daisho is a pair of swords that samurai would wear. So that word Daisho actually means big little. It came from uh, Daito and Shoto, a long sword and a short sword. So Daisho just means a, a matched pair of swords worn by a samurai in feudal Japan. And you might have seen... Japanese swords actually arranged on like a wooden display, like maybe maybe that kid that you knew in high school that had the Japanese sword, maybe he had a couple of them and they were on a certain stand together, right? So that is the Daisho. And most people think of a, the Daisho as a katana and a wakizashi. The katana is probably the most well-known one. A wakizashi is basically a shorter version of that, but the Daisho could actually be made of a lot of different types of swords, depending on the time period or even the samurai's personal preference. You know, different lengths of blades, different types of blades can be used for different things. So it really depends on what a specific samurai wanted to have with him at all times. What would be most useful for him? Yeah. And, uh, you know, katana and Japanese swords are known for being very sharp. And they are. But there's a lot of myths out there about them, too. Like, you can't just take a katana and cut another sword in half. Depends on how crappy that other sword is. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's possible, but all swords can break and all swords can get dulled, including katanas. Yeah. They're very good swords, but they're not all powerful or anything like some myths would maybe have you believing. Yeah. I also wanted to point out that sword categories in Japan, like there are a lot of different names for a lot of different types of swords, but those categories aren't super distinct. The name for a specific blade might even change just depending on what it's being used for. Yeah. So things get really dense. There's a lot of overlap when you're talking about these different types of swords. So we're not going to try to describe every type of sword, but uh, we'll talk a, a bit about the types of swords that samurai were using. Yeah, exactly. So that brings us to the history section, I think. And the history of all this seemed pretty murky in my research a lot of uh, sources were not super clear on when things happened. You know, with this kind of stuff, like a lot of it depends on trends in different parts of the country. There were a lot of different groups of samurai all over, all over the country that were probably doing things a little bit differently. It's not like the whole country made these huge leaps at the exact same time of how to make these swords and stuff. A lot of things changed at different speeds in different places. But I feel confident in saying that swords in Japan go back thousands of years. Yeah, swords before about the 9th century were modeled after Chinese swords of the time, and they tended to be straight swords with a single-handed grip that were good for mostly stabbing, but a little bit of slashing as well. 
the Japanese swords we all know and associate with Japan today with the graceful curve of the blade has its origins in a sword called the Tachi that was developed somewhere around 800 AD or so. We're not exactly sure. But legend has it that a man invented the sword named Amakuni, who was a famous swordsmith of the time. And he found the best iron sand ore and built a katana with a curve. Or I suppose it's what we'd call a katana today, but it was probably a tight tachi. Mm. And he made it optimal for slicing through enemies because that little bit of curve makes it a lot easier on a downward swing to cut things. Yeah, makes sense. So the myth has it that Amakuni's death was never recorded and that he earned immortality from all the blood absorbed by the blades he created. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting myth. Yeah. But the swords did pop up around that time. Yeah. So the shape of it definitely reflects the changing warfare in Japan because around that time is when cavalry became popular in fighting. Mm. So having a good downward cutting motion with the curved blade became very useful when you're swinging it from a top of a horse. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the concept of the Daisho, those two paired swords, originated somewhere around the 12 to 1300s, and that would be the pairing of a Atachi or some type of long sword with some other short sword that was being worn during a particular time period. There could be all sorts of different combinations that could be called the Daisho. Yeah, early on, the two most common ones probably would be the Tachi paired with a Tanto, which is a short blade under, under a foot long. Yeah, that's definitely probably the most common of that era for sure. Yeah. So moving on a little bit later into history, another big change in warfare in Japan was when the Mongols invaded Japan during the 13th century. Uh, Many samurai found that their swords were too delicate and they were prone to breaking when hacking against the thick leather armor worn by the invading Mongols. So some Japanese swordsmiths begin to make their blades thicker in the back and have a bigger points at the end in response to the Mongol armor Mm. um, to make it easier to poke through or hack through without the sword breaking. Nice. Armor-piercing swords. Yeah, yeah. So by the end of the Momoyama period, around the end of the 1500s, that Tachi, uh, those are mostly abandoned and people wore long and short Uchigatana as their daisho. And the Uchigatana is very similar to the katana. The main difference is just that it's less durable. These were kind of considered disposable swords. Yeah, so this is like the Warring States period of Japanese history. So the artistry that was present in early sword making, a lot of that disappears during this time because they're just trying to pump out so many weapons just to arm all the armies that are constantly running around that like a lot of the art and artistry was lost and sacrificed for mass production. This is also around the time period that samurai started wearing those uchigatana with the cutting edge up yes. instead of down. The tachi, they would wear the opposite direction. But when they started wearing the uchigatana blade side up, so imagine like the curve of the blade would be facing forward 
we're uh, facing the ground, like the curve, the inside of that curve. Yeah, the inside of the curve faces the ground. Yeah. The cutting edge facing up. Right. And there are a couple reasons for this. So one of them is that it allows people to unsheath their sword a little bit faster. And also, when you pull it out, imagine that you're pulling your arm forward, and then as soon as that blade leaves the sheath, you're already kind of in the middle of a downstroke of that sword. So you can slice it in front of you in the same motion that you're pulling it out of its scabbard. In the other direction, with the blade facing down, you'd have to kind of pull it up and out and then sort of turn it around and swing it back down on the person in front of you. Yeah, it took me a while to wrap my mind around that, but as we were imaginary drawing swords, <laughs> it eventually like clicked. Like, yeah. okay, if it's facing down, you've got to pull your arm all the way up above your shoulder to get it out of the sheath. Yeah. And then you've got to turn the sword around and hack downwards. Yeah. I also saw that samurai armor, like they'd have these big plates on their shoulders, so it kind of limited the mobility of their arms. They wouldn't be able to lift their arms as high. So that also oh. makes sense that it would make it easier to... Yeah. To pull it out if you can just pull, pull your arm forward instead of up. Yeah. Yeah, that would be easier with armor. And this also, this way of carrying it protects the blade because if the blade is up, gravity isn't pushing it down into the wood of the scabbard and dulling it. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you'd have to sharpen it much less often probably. Yeah. So that method of carrying their swords seemed to help give rise to what we think of katana. Yeah, the uchi katana evolved into what we think of as the modern katana and yeah. replaced the tachi as the primary weapon of most samurai. Right. And the katana itself changed a bit over the centuries. The length changed, but eventually that came to be paired with the wakizashi that we mentioned earlier to be the daisho. And that wakizashi is basically a backup auxiliary sword, generally a shorter version of the katana. They could be made slightly differently and by different people but that's basically what a wakizashi is. Yeah. And it's also going to be used for fighting in close quarters. Like if you have a really long katana and you're fighting in a narrow hallway, that's you know going to be a bit unwieldy. So the wakizashi can be helpful in those kinds of situations. I also saw that they would use those for beheading a defeated enemy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Short swords definitely have their use in tight combat. Mm -hmm. And just... As a reflection of the times changing, many of the older Tachi swords were actually shortened in the 15th to 17th centuries to meet the demand for katanas. So they'd take a Tachi and they'd shorten the sword and basically turn it into a katana. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because that's what people wanted at the time. Huh. So we've been talking about the Daisho like it's purely a samurai thing, but actually... In Japanese history, there could be other people just carrying around a couple swords. They could be referred to as a daisho. But in 1588, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, a guy that's really famous for unifying Japan, sent out armies to confiscate swords from people. Like, you know, you're consolidating power, unifying the country. You want to make sure that there aren't just tons of people running around with swords, doing whatever they want, forming little militias. So he sent out armies to confiscate swords, and they made it so that only samurai could carry a daisho. And then not long after that, in 1629, the Tokugawa shogunate put out an edict that said that samurai had to wear their daisho when on official duty. That kind of cemented the daisho-samurai link. 
And I also thought this was interesting. Traditionally, only one sword would have been used in combat, but in the early 1600s, there was this famous swordsman, Miyamoto Musashi, who promoted the idea of a one-handed grip. And he kind of introduced the idea of double-wielding these blades. You got your katana in one hand, your wakizashi in the other hand. So between the Warring States period, when a lot of the artistry and craft for making swords was abandoned in favor of making more swords more quickly, and then on top of that, the era of peace um, ushered in by the Tokugawa shogunate, a lot of the ancient knowledge of making these amazing swords was lost. But there was a swordsmith who made it his life's work to revive this. His name was Suishinchi Masahide. Um, He lived in the late 18th to early 19th century. He wrote and published opinions that the swords they were making were inferior to the old blades and that research should be made by all swordsmiths to try to rediscover the lost techniques. Hmm. And the swordsmiths really rallied behind it. And it kind of like ushered in a second renaissance of Japanese swordsmithing. The swords made during that time were considered better than the ones made during the Warring States period, but not quite as good as the ancient blades that were made prior to that. Mm. It Um, sounds like he kind of revived the idea of these swords as an art form. Yes, exactly. It also seems kind of unfortunate that... uh, I mean, the time period that that happened, because at this point, swords were kind of dying out uh, in popularity. Like, people weren't carrying swords around that much anymore. In 1871, after the Meiji Restoration, there was actually, the emperor put out an edict abolishing the requirement that samurai wear their daisho. And then five years later, 1876, wearing swords in public was completely banned for normal people. The only people that could have them were lords, the daimyo, they call them and the military and police. And then not even long after that, the entire samurai class was abolished. So not much use for swords anymore. Yeah, so almost overnight, the market for swords just died with all that stuff happening. Yeah. But because the police were able to have them, it kept like just a little bit of a market going, and the craft was able to continue. So do you think the police were using these super high-quality, like, art swords that this guy was making some of them but i don't think your average police officer could afford like a really really nice one yeah i guess but they were the only ones using swords at the time so that's what the market became i wonder how often they actually used them you know hopefully not much but they carried them like they they weren't walking around with revolvers or guns yeah. like well, that was their weapon i'm curious like how they used them because these days i mean in the u.s police all carry guns but I would think most policemen never even draw their gun just in their daily work, you know? So I wonder if these policemen in Japan were using their swords to, like, I don't know, just threaten people to keep them in line or if they're... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was more about showing that you're wearing them than it was about actually ever drawing a sword. Right, right. But I did see that at this time is when kendo, which is the martial martial art of Japanese sword fighting, where they fight with bamboo sticks. Um, that was incorporated into police training. So the police officers were to at least know how to use the swords. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Although police officers don't carry swords today in Japan, 
there's still a ton of police that train in kendo. Yeah. And there's a big police kendo tournament every year. Yeah, that's really cool. So what kept swordsmithing alive in this time is that there were a few individuals employed by the imperial court as artisans that were still making classical Japanese swords. One of these guys was named Gasan Sadakatsu, and his students were eventually designated as an intangible cultural asset of Japan because they are, quote, living national treasures because they embodied the knowledge that was considered to be fundamentally important to Japanese society. Awesome. So through them, even to the modern day, is where Japanese sword making is still living on. They make swords for the imperial family and high-ranking individuals. That brings us closer to World War II time, Japan. Yeah. So the military was still using swords in World War II, mostly just as just symbols of power. Like an officer would walk around with a sword on his belt. Right. But after World War II, between 1945 and 1953, sword-making and even sword-related martial arts were banned in Japan. Since 1953, though, swords can be made, but there's still a lot of restrictions. To make swords, you must be licensed and serve a five-year apprenticeship. You're only allowed to make two long swords per month, and all swords that are made must be registered with the government. So they're keeping an eye on things. Yeah, I've heard if people own swords in Japan that are considered like subpar swords or not registered correctly, they'll get confiscated and you'll get fined. Hmm. So they only allow the finest swords in Japan these days. Now we should specify that there's a difference between functional swords and decorative swords. You can find decorative swords in Japan for just a few hundred bucks that are going to look authentic for the most part, but they're purely meant to be decorations in your home. They're not made of the same quality steel. They're not meant to be sharpened. They're just there to look pretty. And this whole episode, we're talking about functional swords, like actually made to cut things. Yes, exactly. And if you're looking to buy a functional sword, I saw that the very minimum that you're going to be spending is like $4,000 in comparison to the few hundred dollars you might see for a decorative sword. Yeah, if you're finding a sword for a couple hundred bucks, it's not a functional sword. Right. So these days, some of those old swords are still around as collector's items or in museums, or you can buy ones that are still being made, those new ones. You can get those really expensive, authentic ones from Japanese swordsmiths, but if you're outside of Japan, there are plenty of replicas made by Western swordsmiths. China makes a lot of just cheap, low-quality replicas. And some swords are still used in some martial arts like kendo, ninjutsu, iaijutsu, etc. Let's talk a little bit about what the modern katana and wakazashi ended up becoming. Yeah. So the katana, I mean, you've probably seen one of these, at least have some idea in your head of what they look like. They got a pretty long grip because these were originally two-handed swords. Like I said, there was that one guy that introduced the idea of fighting, you know, with one hand on your sword, but for the most part, it's still a two-handed sword. So you got a long enough grip for that. And then between that and the sharp part of the blade, you got a circular or a squared guard. And, you know, I always thought that this part of a sword was to protect your hands from an attacker's sword. 
But for the katana, I read that it actually is more to protect your hands from slipping onto your own blade when you're thrusting the sword into something. Yeah, I heard that at some point too. You know, in real sword combat, I guess you didn't really lock swords and slide them up and down each other or whatever. Right, right. You're just like, <laughs> just hacking at each other. Just trying to stab each other through the armor wherever you can. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know if we really know what sword play was really like. Yeah. Because we have no videos of uh, people fighting with swords that really knew what they were doing. Yeah. So above that guard, of course, you have the blade part, the most important part, the business end of the sword, as they say. And like I mentioned earlier, the the length varied throughout history, but generally the length of a katana would be between 60 and 80 centimeters, which is about 24 to 31 inches. And then the wakizashi, we said the companion sword, the shorter sword, would be between 30 and 60 centimeters, or between one and two feet long. And as I also mentioned earlier, that could be forged a bit differently than the katana. And to be a daisho, to be a, a matched set of swords like that, they don't necessarily need to be forged by the same person even. And they could be made in different ways with you know different qualities of steel. And we're going to talk a bit more about all the little details of the swords. But first, I wanted to talk about how those blades are made because it's a very cool process. And that's part of why these swords are so famous around the world. Yeah, let's get into forging a Japanese sword. Yeah. So these swords are made from high carbon steel. And that carbon is what allows them to make it really hard and sharp. So the swords are between 0.5 and 0.7% carbon by mass, sometimes even up to 1.5% carbon. And the way that this process starts is by a traditional smelting process So what they do here is they take very pure iron sand and they heat that up at a very high temperature and mix it with charcoal. The charcoal is to add that carbon. And this process lets them purify the steel and they're going to have a lot of control over the carbon concentration because at the end of this process, you get a chunk of steel that has layers. The different layers of that chunk are going to have different amounts of carbon so they could separate that out and have all their different types of steel that they're going to use for different parts of the blade. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. It's not the same steel used for the whole blade. Yeah. It gets, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, and there are a bunch of different ways that they can layer it together in certain ways to make different sections of the blade different hardnesses. But a consistent and really important part is that the core of the blade needs to be pretty soft, low-carbon steel, because... It needs to be able to flex. If the whole blade is super rigid and hard, it could just shatter when it hits something at a high speed. So that soft, low-carbon steel is forged and folded again and again to purify it, and that's going to make up the middle of the blade, like I said. And then they have that high-carbon steel that gets forged and folded with something called pig iron, which is even higher carbon content. So this is the hard steel that they're making for that edge, because the edge needs to be really hard so that it can hold a really sharp edge and cut through things really easily. And they'll also use higher carbon steel for a jacket around that soft core steel so that it's more durable, it doesn't get scratches and stuff really easily. And this folding and welding process happens up to 16 times 
to remove impurities and create layers. And those layers are important because you have, I mean, it's all high carbon, hard steel, but if you have these layers of slightly less hard with the slightly harder steel, you get a stronger blade. It has some flex, but it's also hard at the same time. Yeah, if you make a blade too hard, it's just going to break. Yeah, it's, it's really a fine line. Yeah, so they limit that folding to 16 times. If they keep going past that, you don't have those layers of hard and slightly less hard steel. You just end up with a homogenous steel. Like There is no benefit to the folding anymore at that point. Eventually, it all just meshes back together if you fold it too many times. Right, right. So they're going to take that soft steel, the hard steel, and form it into a billet, which is just uh, this hunk of steel. You have all these different types of steel with different carbon concentrations layered together in a certain way. So that's basically what you want that final blade to look like at that point. But this billet is going to be relatively straight. It's not going to have that curve that katanas are known for. And the reason for that is because it needs to go through a process called differential hardening. Yeah, I thought this was really cool. It is really cool. So this is when they cool the blade down after heating it to forge it. And the different types of steel need to be cooled differently. So they paint a thin layer of clay over the blade. And over the thicker part of the blade, they put more clay on it so that it cools down slower than the sharp edge of the blade. Right, because the faster metal cools down, the harder it's going to get. And that carbon content also figures into that. The more carbon there is, the harder it's going to be. Yeah, so the edge is going to cool quicker and become harder and then the rest of the blade is going to be softer, allowing it to absorb more shock without breaking. Exactly. So once they coat that billet in the different amounts of clay, depending on the part of the blade, then they heat that blade to red hot, real hot. And these swordsmiths, it's amazing all of the little details that they're paying attention to because any little screw up in any part of this could completely destroy the blade and they have to start all over. So when they're heating it up, the master swordsmith knows just by look if it's hot enough. Like he can tell by the shade of red when it's at the perfect temperature. That's cool. Yeah. And so the way that they cool it down is it's going to be quenched, which means they thrust that blade into water or sometimes oil. And even that, I mean, they need to make sure that that water or oil is at the perfect temperature so that the blade gets cooled down at the perfect speed. And when they plunge the sword into the liquid, they need to make sure that they do it perfectly vertically because if one side goes in there before the other side, the blade could warp like left to right. And that's, I mean, it's no good. Then it's ruined. Like there's so many opportunities to ruin this blade. It's crazy. Yeah. Not all the blades survive this process, right? Yeah. During this quenching thing, up to a third of all the blades that you make are going to crack and be totally ruined, even if you do everything else perfectly. Like, it's just just luck at that point, you know? So, like we said, when this quenching happens, that edge is going to get harder than the rest of the blade, and that is what creates that curve. The edge, as it cools, like, it's such a shock that it basically freezes in the position it's in, but the rest of the blade, as it's cooling more slowly, it'll contract and it'll pull the blade backwards so you have that curve. 
That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And I mean, again, just the pure mastery of these guys to be able to know exactly how much it's going to curve. There's just so many factors into making the perfect blade. It, It blows my mind. Yeah. It takes a ton of knowledge and skill to make these things. Yeah. And that's just the blade. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to all the other pieces of it, but so that, that quenching, like I said, it creates the curve. It also creates something called the hamon, which is a very important part of an authentic Japanese sword. The hamon is a visual effect that shows the edge of that hardened zone on the, the sharp edge of the blade. And it's, it's really cool looking. If you look at pictures of a sword, like really close-ups of the blade, you'll see this kind of wavery little line that separates what looks like two different types of steel almost. You got the really hard steel on the edge and then the softer stuff further back. And a lot of attention and skill goes into making that as well. There are a lot of different styles of hamon that different swordsmiths can make depending on the techniques that they use. It can be a really smooth, wavy line representing the waves of the ocean maybe or i've seen ones that are also really jagged and sharp and like go up and down to symbolize mountains wow every piece of this sword you know it really is an art form you know so once this quenching is done your sword is hardened but that edge could actually even get too hard and then they need to temper the blade to bring it to the perfect hardness and it's got to be perfect for cutting and slicing and stabbing and you got to make sure it's not going to break and shatter so tempering they heat the steel not nearly as much as they did before the quenching but they heat it to a certain temperature to change the structure of that steel to get it to just the right hardness and then you got your blade all you need to do is polish it to a mirror finish and there are specific people that polish blades yeah and all they do is polish blades and they're experts at it Yeah. I mean, even through the whole rest of the process, it's not necessarily the same person doing all of that. And it's probably not the same person. Like, this is such a precise process that needs to be done perfectly that there are going to be different people that specialize in each little section of that process to make sure it's perfect. So many people go into making each of these swords. Yeah. And that forging process could take several days or even weeks. And then once it's finished and it gets passed off to the, the polishers, that could take another one to three weeks. Yep. It could take months to finish one sword. And it's not done when the blade's polished either. You still got just a blade. Yeah, yeah. And making these swords is considered a sacred art. Traditionally, actually, it involved a bunch of Shinto rituals, like so many other things in old Japan. And there were also, before you even get to decorating that blade with the other accessories and mountings, the blade itself could be decorated with signatures, of people that made it or dedications to the people it was made for Mm -hmm. or depictions of gods or dragons or whatever, all sorts of different ways. But not even only on the part of the blade that you would see. I thought this was interesting. You could see decorations on the tang, which is the part that goes, you know, underneath the handle. Stuff that you would never see, really. Yeah, I saw that. Is like a signature of the maker or it's something that really proves that it's like a real sword. Yeah, there are different things that could go under there, I think. But I just thought it was cool that they, they hide little secret stuff under the under the hilt, basically. Yeah, yeah. I also thought it was interesting that, Paul, did you see like a katana blade in a museum or something like that? Yeah. Like without any of the other stuff, like just the metal blade? Mm, I don't recall that. Okay. I think they had hilts on them. Yeah. 
I saw at least one in some museum. I think it was in Kanazawa, which is really known for a lot of samurai history kind of stuff. And I was surprised that like the sharp part of the blade looked how I would expect it to. It was all nice and polished and pretty. But the tang and the part that goes under the hilt mm-hmm. was kind of gross looking. Like it had never been cleaned and it was kind of rusty and whatever. There's a reason for that. Yeah, they do that on purpose. Yeah, you're never supposed to clean the tang. And it could actually cut the value of that sword in half or more. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. The point is to show how well the steel ages. It's really high quality steel. It's like a patina that forms. I guess a lot of antiques are kind of like that. You don't want to wash off that patina. Yeah. It's all about how it ages gracefully. Yeah, so that's to check the quality of the steel 100, 200 years later, whatever. Yeah. That's really cool. Yep. So after your blade is forged and polished, you need to pass it on to a mountings maker to uh, put the hilts and all the other little pieces on it. Yeah, let's talk about all that stuff because there, there are a lot of pieces. You might think, oh, it's just the handle and then you got the scabbard that it goes in and that's pretty much it, but a lot of little details. Yeah, so you have the hand guard, which is usually small and round and made out of metal. And very ornate. The hand guards are going to be carved and looking good. Yep, that's called the tsuba. And it also, I saw, helps balance the weapon. Oh, okay. The weight of it. Okay, that's cool. So these tsuba were uh, originally pretty much just functional to make sure, like we said, your hand doesn't slip onto the blade. But in the Edo period, they started getting a lot more ornamental. I think a lot of this process got more ornamental in the Edo period because... They weren't being used for combat as much as they were. People were thinking of them as more of an art form, right? Yeah, it was like showing off that you're a samurai rather than actually fighting with them. Right. Uh, So you mentioned scabbards earlier. You're going to have to make a special scabbard for your sword. Yeah, that is called the saya. And they would make that from a really lightweight wood and put a coat of lacquer on the outside. So if you see those, they're usually really shiny and pretty looking. But underneath that, it's uh, some pretty light wood. Wood's so light that I read you have to be really careful when you're drawing the sword out of it because you could actually slice through it with the sword and cut through your fingers. So, Wow, that's crazy. You would think that the scabbard could handle the blade that was holding it, but uh, I guess not if it's made out of wood and the blade's so sharp. Yeah. Also on that scabbard, there's a little knob called a kurigata, which is where a cord is attached. That cord is called the sageo. I don't know if all this vocabulary is necessary, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway. <laughs> so the sageo, that cord, that's what, what you would use to tie that sword to your belt or whatever. And I read that a lot of samurai would have a very specific way that they would want to tie that up around the sword when it's not in use, like a, a decorative way for hmm. when it's just on display. Okay, yeah. And on the tip of the scabbard, by the where the point of the blade would be, there's something called the kojiri which is an end cap that could be really intricately decorated. So the hilt or the grip needs to be added to the blade. Yeah, you don't want to hold on to that tang swinging around just a naked piece of metal. So the hilt is something called the tsuka. That's going to be made of wood. And there could be ornaments called minuki that are on either side of that grip that fits into the palm of your hand so that you have a better hold on the handle. Tsuka is also wrapped in ray skin, like stingray skin, called samigawa. I thought that was kind of cool. 
because that gives it a little sort of pebbly texture so your hands don't slip off maybe when they get all sweaty or something. Yeah, you definitely would need a good grip on a sword during a long, bloody battle. Yeah. So if you've seen a katana before, you might have seen this kind of crisscrossy sort of cloth wrap that goes around it. That's called the tsukaito. And traditionally, that was made of silk. But these days, they usually use cotton, sometimes even leather for that part. And that also just gives some more texture so that there's a lot to grip onto there. The thing's not going to be slipping out of your hands. Yeah, I didn't know that was made out of silk traditionally. Interesting. Yeah. When I tape up my baseball bats on the grip, I tape them in that pattern. With silk? No, <laughs> athletic tape. You use that pa- like the same way that they wrap the swords? Yeah, like the crisscrossing. Huh. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that gives me the best grip. I don't know. Cool. Nice. So on the end of the hilt where the blade is going to go in, there's something called the fuchi, which is a metal cap and kind of a collar. Like it goes around the very top part of that hilt. And then on the other end, the back end, the very bottom end, if you're holding on to that hilt, there is a, an end cap there, just like on the end cap of the scabbard. This one's called the kashira, and that's going to be decorated as well, just like the other one was. Those can be really ornate and have all sorts of different little designs or animals or something on the ends of them. So, Paul, how is the blade held into the hilt? There's a bamboo pig called a mekugi that slipped through the tang of the blade and the hilt to hold it securely in place. Yeah, so like the metal tang has a hole in it, and when that gets slipped into the hilt, that peg just kind of locks it in there. But I actually saw that that's kind of a secondary measure. Like that's just security to make sure it doesn't pop out. But really there should be enough friction between the tang itself and the wood around it to hold it in place. You just gotta shove it in there and it's... And it's good. Well, also, we remember we talked about the way that the tang can be decorated. Mm-hmm. Part of that is like there'd be these little lines, like cross-hatching almost, that gives it a little more texture so the wood has more to grip onto. That's cool. That's yeah. really cool. Okay, so imagine you got, you got your hilt. You got the little guard that we talked about. Right on the other side of that guard, on the very bottom part of the blade, there's a little piece of metal called the habaki that encircles the blade. So it's like... You know, you got the sharp blade coming all the way down, and then right above your hands, there's this little circle of metal before that guard even. Mm -hmm. And the point of that is that it locks the tsuba in place. Like, that also helps keep the blade there. But that also keeps the weapon in its scabbard. When you slide your sword into its scabbard, that little metal piece is the last thing that goes into the scabbard, and that's going to add some friction there that holds it closed so your sword wouldn't just fall out if you turned it upside down. Yeah, because it's a little bit thicker than the rest of the blade. Yeah, and this figures into something you might see in samurai movies or something, or any movie where somebody's carrying around a katana. You ever see them like reach down with their left hand and pop the sword out of, but it's not like, they're not drawing it, they're just popping it out. Just like an inch up. Yeah, that is what this habaki is for. Like it holds it in there and then you can just pop it out like and you're that, breaking the seal. Exactly. And at that point, you can draw your sword really quickly without any resistance. So if you were to walk up to somebody and you're talking to them and you pop that up, that's like a really aggressive yeah. <laughs> gesture, you know? Like, just so you know, my sword is ready at a moment's notice if I need to cut you down. Yeah, that would definitely be aggressive if you're just talking to someone and they pop out their sword a couple inches. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I didn't find 
a good place in here. I guess this didn't come up. I wasn't sure where to mention this, but did you see that these swords are always worn on the left side? And there are a lot of reasons for that. One is that walking down the street, you'd be walking on the left side of the street. You know, people drive on the left side of the road in Japan, same kind of idea. And to knock your sword against somebody else's when you're just walking around is like a big offense. Mm. You don't want to do that. So if you're walking on the left side of the street and your sword is on the left side of you, you can be sure that it's not going to hit against somebody that's walking towards you on your right side. Interesting. Also, (laughs) I saw it said that there were no left-handed samurai. Paul, you're left-handed, right? Yep. You wouldn't be a samurai. <laughs> well, I guess I would have learned right-handed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There were, there were definitely people that might have tended towards left-handedness as kids, but if they were training to be a samurai, they were trained to use the swords right-handed. There was only one way to use those swords, one way to train. In all parts of the world, people seem to have disliked left-handed people for a long, long time. Isn't that weird? It's, it's kind of weird. I don't know. Yeah. Don't be too different. (laughs) I don't judge you for your left-handedness, Paul. I accept you for all your flaws. (laughs) Oh, thanks. I play sports right-handed, which is kind of weird. It is weird. I write left-handed. But I think left-handedness is actually pretty cool. My dad was left-handed, too. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I'll have to bra out with him about being left-handed next time I see him. (laughs) Yeah. Give me some good (laughs) bonding material for you guys. (laughs) All right, well, I've been nerding out about swords for a pretty long time now. I think I've exhausted myself. You got anything else, Paul? No, I think we covered it as well as we could have. Yeah, this is kind of a tough topic because it's just, there's so much information out there. There are a lot of people that are really into Japanese swords, and (laughs) we did a a lot of research, and uh, I hope it came across in a way that makes sense. And I'm sure we got a couple at least little things maybe not perfectly so if there are any sword nerds out there listening let let us know what we got wrong yeah we can go back and correct any minor mistakes yep so if you are ever in a museum that's got a real japanese sword in it i suggest you go take a really close look because there's just so much to these swords if you look closely you're gonna see a lot of cool stuff yeah there really is a lot they're pretty amazing All right, well, if you want to learn more, see some pretty pictures, check out our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. You could also check out our Instagram, sjppodcast. And, you know, I think I found at least one picture of some swords that I have for my trips that I'll make sure to post there. Nice, nice. Yeah, go check out the Instagram. Lots of cool pictures Jason's got on there. Aw, shucks. (laughs) Uh, So what's our next episode, Paul? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about Christmas in Japan. Oh, yeah, the holidays are coming up. With 1% Christian population, you wouldn't think there would be much, but there's actually starting to be a bit of a Christmas tradition in Japan. Yeah, yeah, a lot of Christmas cheer over there. So we'll discuss that. It should be a nice, fun episode. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.